I'm Christos Gage, writer of Superior Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, and Spider Island, and you're listening to The Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing through the air Sit back and prepare For the Amazing Spider-Talk Hello and welcome to The Amazing Spider-Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan and I'm the editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mark Janacchio, editor and founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and an editor at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Thanks for joining us for this, again, special episode of Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors and some creators as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, and, and in terms of a special episode, Dan, this is another one of those Spider Talk and their Amazing Friends episodes. Uh, this time around, we're going to be speaking with uh, amazing and superior Spider-Man writer Christos Gage, who uh, has collaborated with Dan Slott uh, on a number of very large arcs, including Goblin Nation, uh, and has also kind of done his own spin, including a couple of annual issues. So uh, I'm sure Christos got some good things. You had the opportunity to speak with him at length, Dan, right? Yeah, and also to mention, he uh, you know writes for the Daredevil television show, um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, we get to talk for quite a while, and uh, there's a lot of great insights here, not only about how he writes and his history with comics, but kind of how his partnership with Dan Slott works. And um, you know, we haven't been able to interview Dan Slott, but this is pretty much the next best thing um, in terms of getting an idea about how Spider-Man comics are created in 2015. Sounds great, Dan. So why don't we get right to it? Yeah, let's dive right into our interview. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. Hi, everybody. This is Dan Gavazdan here, and I'm joined by a special guest. Oh, hi. This is Christos Gage, and uh, you may know me from Superior Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Island, any number of Spider-Man stuff. Oh, great. Well, we all love uh, all of those things. So, uh, Christos, thanks for joining us. Before we get into asking you any questions about what you're doing now in comics, I'm curious a little bit about how you first got into comics, both as a child and as a professional. Well, as a child, that's a tough one because I learned to read when I was three years old, so I don't even remember what I first started reading. I'm sure it was probably, uh, you know, a Disney comic or something along those lines. But, I mean, I've got a uh, I've got pictures of myself holding – I don't know if it was the original Amazing Spider-Man 140 with the Grizzly or the Marvel Tales that reprinted it a few years later, but mm-hmm. one or the other. Uh, I remember, I remember buying the – Stegron the Dinosaur Man reanimates 
dinosaurs, skeletons, and the Museum of Natural History issues. Uh, you dove right in with some real quality villains. Yes, I did indeed. I, I was a huge dinosaur nut as a little kid to the point where um, when my preschool did its dinosaur section, they, the teachers just had me teach that section because I knew everything about dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, I've forgotten a lot of it since then. But, um, you know, uh, I, I knew a lot about dinosaurs, so I think that's probably why I gravitated towards Stegron the Dinosaur Man so much. And, uh, yeah, I was right in there. I, I still have an X-Men 107 that I bought off the stands. So we're talking mid-'70s, 1976, there about 75. Uh I was real little, so I don't even remember what my first comics were, but uh, right away I was into comics. And then when I was probably, I want to say, about 1978, maybe, 77 thereabouts, right around the time my, my youngest sister was born, so I guess mid-77, uh, we moved to, to Greece for, for about four years. And where I was there, there was a place where I could get American comics, uh, but only Marvels. They, they didn't get DCs. They just got Marvels. So I got really, you know, I became a, a young Marvel fanatic very early and I uh, didn't start picking up DCs again until right around uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earths era. Um, but, you know, I've been reading comics my whole life and uh, it, it's just, just in my DNA, I guess. I mean, not literally because none, none of my parents do, but... Uh, it's it's just there. Um, as far as how I got started in writing comics, uh, I went to film school. Uh, my wife and I started writing movies, uh, started writing TV at some point. And when I was writing TV, we were doing Law & Order SVU. Uh, and I had, this was about 2003, I had become friends with Jimmy Palmiotti, who I met at a convention. And uh, Jimmy knows everybody in the business, and he's a really nice guy. And he knew I wanted to write comics, so he said, you know, if you want, I can set up a, a lunch for you with Dan DiDio while you're in New York shooting your episode of SVU. And I said, sure, that would be great. And he did. And this was a, this was before, like, everybody in Hollywood was writing comics. It was – at the time, there was, like, Kevin Smith and Joss Whedon were about the only people who had, who had written comics from Hollywood. Because um, at the time, it was very – it was still looked at as – a step down. You know, if you wrote, if you wrote, uh, it, it used to be very stratified. If you wrote movies, you didn't write TV unless you couldn't get work in movies anymore. If you wrote live action TV, you didn't write animation unless you couldn't get work in live action anymore. It was very, you know, like a cast system almost, which was ridiculous. And then people like Kevin Smith and Joss Whedon came along and said, the hell with that. I, I enjoy all these types of storytelling and I'm going to do all of them. And now just like, you know, 15 years later, we're at a point where uh, it's an advantage to, to do as many different types of writing as possible. Yeah, so it's completely come full circle. But back in 03, it was still somewhat unusual. And so that's how I got that meeting and pitched a Dana story, which turned out to be the Deadshot miniseries, which was just this year collected in trade paperback form. So go out and get it. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was fun. And from there, I think I started at Marvel. Shortly after Deadshot came out, I was at a con here in L.A., and I approached uh, Tom Brevoort, and he had read Deadshot and liked it. So he tried me out uh, on a—at the time, Marvel had a tryout book called uh, Spider-Man Unlimited, and there were two stories in each issue, and they would use established artists, usually who were in between longer assignments and were looking for something short uh, to, to keep them busy— 
uh, with, paired with writers who were new to Marvel and were sort of trying out at Marvel. Uh, Joe Hill did a story in there, various other folks. Um, and I did a story, ended up getting paired with Mike McCone, who I later did Avengers Academy with. And it was a Spider-Man story. And my, uh, my idea was to bring back a villain called the Big Wheel. And it was sort of a comedic story in which the Big Wheel has been to Villanon, which is a Villains Anonymous recovery program mm. for supervillains. And he's at the stage where he's trying to make amends for his past wrongs. So he goes to Spider-Man and tells him he wants to help him fight crime, except he's terrible at it. Uh, so hilarity ensues. <laughs> and not to go too far back, but I'm curious, you know, you went, you said you lived for four years in Athens, Greece. Mm-hmm. Your father, I also read, was a New York Times journalist. Yes. Do you think that that had any impact on you looking to becoming a writer for a living? I think somewhat, yeah. Both my parents were journalists, and what that did, more than any sort of stylistic thing, what it did is it, it I grew up real understanding that writing was a career that people did, that that, you know, was an actual viable thing. Like I read a lot of interviews with people who, you know, are screenwriters or comic book writers. And they say that up till a certain point, they didn't even know that actual, you know, when they were kids, they didn't occur to them that actual people made these, wrote these stories. And I did know that because I knew my parents did it. Um, so I always had in my, in my head that this was a viable career as much as doctor, lawyer, carpenter, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think that that did help me think that this might be something I wanted, wanted to do. I didn't want to be a journalist. Uh, I wanted to do more, you know, creative writing, uh, uh, fiction writing and, you know, tell stories about dinosaurs fighting giant robots. And you said you went to school for uh, for writing, and but you didn't just go to any school for writing. You went to the AFI Conservatory, which is an absolute dream of mine. Oh. Uh, what, what was that experience like? Did, did you get anything out of that experience that lent itself to writing comics? Or did you have any intention of writing comics at that time? I mean, I always thought it might be something I wanted to do if I could get into it. Uh, in the mid-'80s, when I was like 15 or 14, I, I sent in a submission – to Marvel, it was like a plot submission written on yellow legal pad paper, and it was it just a gigantic fight scene. And they were they wrote me a nice letter back, form letter saying, uh, "Yeah, you're not quite there yet, kid. Keep trying." <laughs> um, and then in, in when I was in college, I I submitted some ideas to DC and Image, and people were encouraging, but uh, it never really quite broke through. And uh, so then when I the thing about film school is there was actually such a thing as a film school at the time. There were, they weren't even any, there was no internet to speak of and there, there was no online courses about writing comics. So I think that's why I gravitated towards this thing called film schools, where you actually go and they teach you how to write movies and TV shows. And, uh, like you say, AFI is one of the top schools and I was lucky enough to get into that. And I went and it was, you know, it's funny cause, uh, I don't think that, Theoretically, you could learn everything I learned at AFI on your own. I just think it would take you like seven years instead of the two I spent at AFI, and you'd have to really have a lot of resources. Um, I mean, with the internet, you can learn a lot of that stuff now. You can watch lectures with people. You can listen to DVD extras. But there's something, you know, and you could join a writer's group. But there's something about being there in, in a class with other writers who are all doing the same thing. You're reading each other's stuff. You're giving each other notes. And then once or twice a week, an actual working professional comes in. Like we had Shane Black come in. Uh, we had uh, uh, Robert uh, Town, you know, and I mean, legendary, legendary writers. Uh, 
and it was really great. And then the other thing that was cool is, I mean, everybody had their own specialization. There were editors, cinematographers, producers, directors, screenwriters. But if a lot of times you could go into the classes of other disciplines. I got to sit in a, in a classroom cinematography class with Conrad Hall while we screened the movie and he talked over it and described different things, almost like a DVD commentary track, but he was right there and you could ask him actual, you know, specific questions. Um, so that was a great experience. Uh, we had, I remember one of our very first days, uh, Ed Zwick, a director brought, um, his movie legends of the fall, Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins movie. And he actually showed us the movie and then he showed us a number of outtakes, which was really interesting and really nice on his part because they were essentially, he was showing us things and said, this doesn't work. And let me explain to you why it doesn't work. But he he was also saying, I didn't know it wasn't going to work when I shot it. Um, there was one particular scene mm-hmm. that he, 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 he was in the book that he was adapting and he insisted on shooting it, even though everyone from the actors to whoever told him it, it wouldn't work and it didn't work. But he said, I wanted to see how it would come out. So they came up with something else. So then you really doing that, which I thought was very generous, showed us how you learn as you're, you know, I mean, hopefully you figure these things out before you shoot because it costs a lot of money to shoot, but you know, how, how, how you try things. And I think there's some feeling of like among civilians that this movie that you see on the screen springs forth fully formed and it really doesn't. It's, it's such a collaborative process. And really the miracle is that any movie or TV show is any good at all because there are so many different people involved, so many moving parts, and all it takes is for one to go wrong. Like, a bad score can ruin a movie. Uh, A good score can really help a scene, Um, you know, any number of things. So it was really fascinating. And, of course, I met Ruth there, who uh, became my writing partner and my wife. And, you know, so it was was a great experience in a lot of ways. Do you have any feelings about that with any of your comics, like something you've tried to do and feel like – Despite your best best efforts, you look back on it now and say that didn't quite work out the way that I wanted it to. That happens a lot. I think most creative people look back, look back on things they've done and they can always see ways they can improve it. Uh, there was you know there was one project uh, I remember I was approached by Marvel to do uh, adaptations of the second I want to say is the second Iron Man movie and the first Thor movie. And I was told, look, we've only got two issues for each. That's all we have the budget for. And I said, gosh, that seems like a lot of story to put in. You know, can I cut the story? And they're like, well, you got to try to fit as much of the movie story as possible in there. And I said, it's going to be really sort of cramped. And they're like, we know it's just I mean, this is this is what we have to work with. So, um, you know, please, please just do the best you can. And no one's going to hold it against you if it's not if it's not genius. And, you know. I look at it and it did not turn out well, just given having that little space. When I read them, I I don't think to myself, this is, you know, hey, I did a good job on this. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know that there was a way to do this right. Someone better than me maybe would have been able to, but I just, you know, couldn't make it work. And you, you learn from you learn from your failures as well as your successes. I mean, that's the great thing about see Ruth and I wrote movies for, oh, probably about five years after film school and it's just so hard to get anything made. You write movies, you know, you spend, even if you're getting paid for it, like you might spend a year writing a movie and then it just stays on a shelf for the rest of your life and never gets made. And TV, it gets made more quickly, but with comics, you know, you write a comic, it's probably going to get made because, uh, you know, that's why you're writing. (laughs) writing. (laughs) And then there's the, you move on to the next one. You can't be too, 
too precious about it. So, so uh, I'm curious what your relationship beyond Stegron and Grizzly uh, was to Spider-Man, the character, before you wrote, started writing for him. Well, I read Spider-Man comics. Writer, I, I have a continue. Well, I had a continuous run from about issue. I want to say. 212, the Hydro Man issue, and then the Wizard and the Frightful Four came along. Uh, from there on, right up until uh, the mid-90s with all the Clone Saga stuff, where I sort of bailed a little bit, and then we checked back in, and then uh, I think around the time of the Heroes Reborn, no, Heroes Return, I started it up again. Um, but I read Spider-Man for decades, you know, uh, and like I said, I started – oh, I actually have a, an issue of Spider-Man. The earliest issue of Spider-Man I have that I bought off the stands was 161 where Nightcrawler appears. Mm. Uh, that was very cool. That was also my first exposure to the X-Men. Um, so, uh, yeah, I read Spider-Man. You know, I've been reading Spider-Man comics for 40 years. It's a very similar story to mine. I have a full collection now, um, mm. but I also ducked out during the Clone Saga uh, yeah. only to return when JMS took on the book. Um, right. So um, one of the earliest credited works of Spider-Man that uh, that you took on were the uh, 2009's X-Men and Spider-Man and 2010's Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. How did you uh, land these series? Was that something that came after that unlimited issue you were describing? Uh, I know that I had been working with Andy Schmidt, an editor at Marvel. I worked on – he was my editor. Uh, he was the assistant editor on the Spider-Man Unlimited. He was my editor on Union Jack, on the Civil War Captain America Iron Man one-shot. And, uh, you know, we did a bunch of stuff together. And then he, he and Steve Wacker approached me about doing the Spider-Man X-Men thing. And what had happened was the artist, uh, Mario Alberti, who's this terrific guy, Italian artist, lovely, lovely man. Um, he had contacted them about wanting to do something or they, I don't know who contacted who, but he wanted to do something at Marvel with Spider-Man and they wanted to showcase his work to an American audience. And, uh, they approached me about writing it because they knew I knew all the continuity and, and they wanted each issue to be set in a different era in Marvel history. So I thought that was really cool. And we had a great time on that. And, you know, the first issue was in the Silver Age. Second issue was in the uh, I guess it was in the, um, you know, 80s era. And then the next issue was in the 90s. I can't remember when it all happened. But then the final one was uh, in the present day. And they all sort of tied together with a thread. And it was great because you got, you know, we got to do all the characters. We got to do Mohawk Storm and, you know, everybody. Um, so we had a great time and that sold pretty well. And then we did the Spider-Man Fantastic Four. Uh, and that was great, too. And then miniseries stopped selling so well. So I, we didn't do a third one. We talked about doing Spider-Man Avengers, which would have been pretty awesome, I must say. But uh, <laughs> didn't work out. Who could forget the first time he tried to join the Avengers and they sent him after the Hulk? I know. Um, but uh, <laughs> sound, these stories sound very similar to uh, Dan Slott's Spider-Man Human Torch, the kind of like – Yes. Um, yeah. well, so speaking of Dan Slott, you guys wrote, uh, co-wrote about a dozen issues of Avengers The Initiative together. Mm-hmm. Is, is this what would eventually spark your co-writing career together on Amazing Spider-Man? Yes. What happened with Initiative is uh, Tom Reward contacted me and said, you know, Dan is um, – Taking on, I think it was actually that he was going to be part of the Amazing Spider-Man uh, Brain Trust, um, sure. Which at the time included, I believe, Mark Wade, Mark Guggenheim. Uh, we had Joe Kelly on our show a couple weeks ago. Yep. Um, and so 
uh, he was going to, he wanted to stick with initiative, but, uh, Dan, you know, Dan's not one of the fastest guys in the business as he himself will tell you. And, uh, he wanted to take on a co-writer. Um, first they actually approached me just to do a, a fill in issue, which ended up being issue 13. And I did, uh, and they all liked that. And I think in interacting with Dan on that and making sure it fit into everything, he felt like we had very similar sensibilities. You know, we both love the history, but we feel, you know, we feel continuity should be a, a tool for a story, not a story in itself. And, you know, continuity is not a story. It's a, it's a, you know, if it's a tool that if you can use is good, but you have to have a good story on your own. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we just clicked and then I was approached about, uh, scripting Dan, Dan writes plot first or Marvel style, which is, he writes the plot, you know, page one, this happens, this happens, page two, this happens, this happens. And the artist draws it. And then he puts in the dialogue, which it used to be how all, all writers at Marvel did it. And, but starting in the late nineties, I guess, um, it's, it's all full script, except unless you want to, and Dan does it the old way. Um, so we did it that way. And for Dan, the plotting part of the story is easier for him than the scripting part. He, he's a real perfectionist and he, he takes forever, you know, he'll go over and over trying to find the best possible line. And I'm a little bit more of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, not clock punching, but, you know, I have a little bit of a, a old school work ethic. Like a lot of these guys, you know, Jack Kirby, Stanley, and, and the, the guys in the Silver Age, um, they were doing the best job they could, but they also were keenly aware of the deadline. You had to turn out this many pages a day to get the books out, and that was your job. And your job was not to to, to be Rembrandt. It was to get the book out. So my philosophy is much more write the best thing you can in the moment. If you have time, go back and make it as good as you possibly can. But when the deadline hits, the deadline hits. Um, so I, I always get stuff in on time. Uh, and, you know, so me and Dan are sort of like Jack Spratt and his wife. We're between us. We can We can put out a... Uh, and plotting is the tougher part for me. So between me and Dan, we can put out, you know, a, a good comic uh, quickly. <laughs> so um, that's why we make a good team. I mean, I always say in terms of writing teams, whether I'm working with, with Ruth or Dan Slott or Mike Costa or anybody, there's no point in having a writing team if you have the exact same skills because you're just duplicating each other and each getting half the money. Sure. You want to have people who, whose skills complement each other so the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that's what Dan and I do. So – yeah, from then on, it was, um, you know, when he needed help on, on Spider-Man stuff, then I would help out on that, too. And I think I, I, I did the issues 661 and 662, I want to say, by myself. You did, That was yeah. to introduce the Avengers Academy characters in Spider-Man. And um, so I do stuff by myself from time to time as well, most recently Spider-Island. Uh, but um, I also work with Dan a lot. Most recently on Amazing Spider-Man number one, one of the backup stories. Great. Well, I know everybody's really looking forward to that book next week. Yes. Um, I guess when listeners hear this, it'll already have been out, so they'll they'll know what they think about your story. There you go. Um, I guess you know now that you mentioned the whole um, writing it the Marvel way. I'm curious what you think the, are the pluses and minuses of writing in this fashion. Well, I mean, I know I've talked to Dan about it, and he feels that one of the pluses is when the art comes in you can really see sometimes you get new he says he gets a lot of new ideas based on what the artist has done you know the the character's face will look a certain like he feels a certain way or dan will see something in the background that the artist put in just for to make it visually cool but it gives him an idea for you know a, a story point or a dialogue point um 
And I, I've really taken that to heart and tried to be, even though I still write full script, I, I've tried to be more open to not being married. To, I mean, you can't be anyway because you have to make changes. Like sometimes you've written too much dialogue and there isn't room for it. But I, I try to be more open to changing things based on inspiration striking after the art comes in, uh, which I think is an important thing to do for any writer. Um, but, you know, it really is about what you're most comfortable with. I know some writers uh, who who began in the – I mean, sorry, some artists who began in the plot first era, uh, John Romita Jr., I think, uh, are, are just used to working plot first. And, and when they get a full script, they feel more constrained, mm. uh, whereas there are other artists who feel like, well, heck, if I'm, if I'm getting a plot first and not – you know, the dialogue I'm doing, you know, I'm doing extra work, you know, uh, I'd rather have a full script. And so I think you should really work with whatever your artist is most comfortable with. I mean, most of the ones I work with don't seem to have a problem with a full script. Here's the thing, though. I think a lot of new comic book artists, writers make this mistake because you read, you know, when you, when you want to read existing scripts in my day, in my day, you, you couldn't, there weren't a lot of ways to read comic book scripts because there was no internet. It was hard to find. And what people would reproduce is the best, which tended to be Alan Moore. And Alan Moore does these incredibly detailed panel descriptions where he literally describes everything. And that's fine if you're Alan Moore, but we are, none of us are Alan Moore. And, and, <laughs> uh, you have to let the artist be a equal creative partner. So what I try to do is, you know, describe a panel and say, here's what's happening in the panel. And here's the dialogue and here's how the characters feel if it's not immediately obvious from the dialogue. And let the artist figure out how to portray that and always make sure the artist knows, hey, if, if you have a different idea of a better way to portray this, then go ahead. Because the artist is the visual master uh, and I feel that they should be allowed to express that and take – they control the visual presentation of the comic. Uh, so I think that some some people – Either they come into it. I think a lot of people who might come from the film and TV world, if they have a directing background, might do this too, where you they describe the shot. You know, give me a medium two shot. Uh, and I think that th that's not the best way to do it in comics. I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that it's best for, for to, to give the artist leeway to tell the story the best way they can. I think that's how you get how you get the best uh, results. So and collaboration, yeah, yeah, collaboration. I mean, you don't want the artist to feel like they are a a art art robot you know you want them to feel like they're they're <laughs> telling the story equally like i know on buffy i mean rebecca is so uh such a part of not just like what what clothes would the characters wear how would they decorate their room but she designs the creatures i i i give her very loose creature descriptions for the most part you know i'm like it has to have tentacles and sharp teeth but do what you want and she comes up with these amazing creature designs so you know i don't think i don't think our uh, writers should be controlling all aspects of it, unless you're Alan Moore, in which case, feel free. So uh, that's a great insight, but uh, I'm curious, after Avengers the Initiative, you were uh, given, you know, uh, a reign on this Avengers Academy book, which became really celebrated, uh, you know, by critics and readers, and I imagine at Marvel. Um, can you talk about how this book was pitched and what it was like to have control over these kind of all-new characters? Yeah, well, I'll tell you how that came about. It came about because Dan and I were working on Avengers The Initiative, which is originally Dan had pitched as a miniseries, but it sold well and was made and ongoing. And so we were working on it, and we knew that even before Dan left the book that there was going to come a time when The Initiative was no longer going to be a thing in the Marvel Universe. And we started talking about, well, what, what should 
happen with our book at that point. And we came up with the idea of it's still, whereas the initiative was more about a boot camp for superheroes, we decided to go with a school for superheroes. Um, and that's about as far as it got. I can't remember if we, we talked about the name Avengers Academy that early or not, but uh, that's about as far as we got. And then when the initiative came to an end with issue 35, we did lead into Avengers Academy. And so my thinking was, let's make it the, um, essentially the, 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 the damaged Avengers teaching a bunch of damaged kids. I mean, that was sort of the twist, which was, these were all kids who had been damaged in some way, often by Norman Osborn, who had been recruiting them for the initiative, uh, when he was running it and, uh, did horrible things to them. And, they the secret the dark secret which the kids find out in the very first issue is that the the avengers organization has told them you guys are going are the next generation of heroes but the truth is they're worried that they're going to be the next generation of villains so it's sort of like um you know i think the first trade paperback is called permanent record it's 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 like that the scary thing about being a a teenager in high school is you know you're you're young and you're you you don't you barely know what you're doing and if you make the wrong choice you're going to ruin the entire rest of your life like the next 60 or 70 years uh you could just ruin it all yeah uh, and and so i i was trying to capture that uh in the comic and mike mccone was my collaborator uh for the first you know year or so and you know we had other amazing artists tom rainey sean chen uh, just all kinds of terrific guys and and we you know we we tried to capture that throughout, um, and it was great. Yeah, we were encouraged to come up with new characters for the students, with the exception of Reptil, who was, um, you know, who was been introduced in one of the cartoons, but was still pretty new to the Marvel universe. And uh, so, uh, you know, we came up with these characters, which sort of personified the, the, the book in different ways. They all had some sort of damage or flaw to them, uh, and you know, to this day, I mean, I, that's probably my favorite thing I've done. Uh, definitely at Marvel, and uh, I'm still really proud of it. I, I'm just thrilled that it, I, it lasted so long as it did, 40 issues, which in this day and age is a huge run. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was just great fun to do. I still have people. I just did the Long Beach Comic Con, and uh, a young lady came up to me and said, you know, thanks for the way you portrayed uh, uh, Julie Power Lightspeed in this and and Stryker and coming to terms with their sexuality. Um and it meant a lot to her. And, uh, you know, it means a lot to me when people tell me that stuff because, you know, it really meant a lot to me. I had a wonderful time working on it and that people still like it, you know, is, is, is important to me. Well, I'll tell you, I put out the call for questions uh, for this interview just because mm-hmm. I'd like to see if the fan community like, wants to add some more questions. I didn't get any questions about Spider-Man. <laughs> I got all questions about when is such and such character from Avengers Academy going to come back? So, well, that's uh, a- you know, there you go. I appreciate that. I know they they appeared in uh, uh, one of this thing Matt Kent did re- relating to Inhumanity. That's probably the most recent appearance of some of them. Uh, but other than that, I don't know anything about any plans. Well, uh, so speaking about Avengers Academy, you did that crossover book that you hinted at before in 661 and 662 of Amazing Spider-Man, mm-hmm. uh, where you know Peter reprised his role as a teacher, which I liked because I like any time – as someone who used to be a high school teacher, I like any time Peter goes back to being a teacher. Yeah, that was um, – What stands out to you about that two-parter? Uh, 
it was just a lot of fun to do. I enjoyed uh, having, um, I enjoyed the part where Giant Man comes to ask, he comes to ask them, you know, he's like, I'm looking for someone to teach Avengers Academy, and Pete assumes it's him because he used to be a teacher, which, of course, Giant Man doesn't know that. Um, but he's actually asking Ben Grimm the thing, and Spidey's like, what the hell? I'm standing right here. Uh, <laughs> and Ben Grimm has a line about, you know, I don't know, I got kicked out of Hebrew school, which doesn't really make you feel like one of the chosen people, uh, which is something that someone, you know, a, a friend of mine said to me once. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just a lot of fun doing the banter and then putting Spider-Man in the, in the, in the classroom and having them ask questions like, you know, he's like, I couldn't... Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't make money as Spider-Man because I, I, I couldn't cash a check. And someone's like, "Well, why don't you just incorporate under a LLC and then Spider-Man LLC, and then you can cash the check?" And Spidey's like, "Who wants to go on patrol?" You know, and just having fun with some of the some of the tropes that don't hold up in real real life. Uh, and then using Psycho Man as the villain was fun because he has the fear, doubt, hate uh, tablets, tablets, and I don't know. It was great. I mean, it was so cool seeing seeing uh, my name on a on the, on a Spider Man Amazing Spider Man issue. Uh, you know, that was a real career highlight. And as a result, my name was on the issue. Was it six hundred? The one with there was a variant cover which had Spider Man swinging over Manhattan. Seven hundred, yeah, yeah, seven hundred. It was all the names of people, uh, the writers, artists, uh, pencilers, and inkers um, in it. And mine was in there with some really. You know, gods of mine, Stanley, Jerry Conway, uh, you know, John Romita, senior and junior. And that was pretty awesome. Uh, one of the things in this story that I've always loved is this assertion that if Peter truly wanted to help protect the city, that he could use his, like, knowledge and abilities to help fund the city's public programs. <laughs> and I thought it was a neat commentary on what some have called the fascism of superheroes. Uh-huh. That, like, instead of working in the system to change things they take the law into their own hands do you have any feelings about this so-called ethics of superheroes i think it's a bit of a silly silly argument because the truth is here's the reason the reason that the superheroes do what they do is because we like reading stories where they fight bad guys we don't like if you if you're going to try to sell me a comic in which spider-man goes out and engages at risk youth and puts them on the right path that's wonderful in real life, but by God, I don't want to read that. <laughs> I want to read him fighting Mysterio. Um, I think there are like 10 or so issues of JMS's run that are like that. Uh, well, I mean, and the other thing, it's like when there used to be this, this argument of why doesn't Batman kill the Joker? It's, is it, it's terrible of Batman not to kill the Joker because he always breaks out of Arkham Asylum and kills more people. And now that's on Batman's conscience. And it's like, you want me to explain to you why Batman doesn't kill a Joker? Because we want to see more Joker stories. We want – do you, you know, how many times has Charles Manson broken out of prison to terrorize the world anew? He never has. You put people in a supermax prison, they are not going to get out. The reason <laughs> Joker gets out of prison is because we want the Joker to get out of prison. Uh, and the reason Batman doesn't kill the Joker is because we want more Joker stories, the end. So I think to some degree, you know, it's what they call suspension of disbelief. And yeah, in real life, Spider-Man, so anyone as brilliant as Spider-Man, and I think Dan is playing on this in the new run, would – would be best serving humanity by coming up with inventions, cures for cancer and, you know, whatever else he can do. But, uh, uh, you know, that's not what we want to read. I don't want to read that. So, uh, you know, we talked a bit about how you and Dan work together uh, when you're writing a book, but I'm, I'm curious about what uh, the thought was from the editors to bring you in as the co-writer with Dan. Was it to ease his load from writing both Spider-Man and Silver Surfer, or was there ever thought 
that you know about of maybe moving Spider-Man back to a monthly book? Well, it's actually uh, – you mean from a biweekly? Yeah, from a biweekly, yeah. I don't think there was because, um, you know, the reason Spider-Man was made a biweekly and initially a weekly was because there have been other Spider-Man books in the past, Spectacular Spider-Man, Adjectiveless Spider-Man, and for the most part they didn't sell as well as Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, so they just made Amazing Spider-Man more frequent. But, you know, I'm sure if that was necessary, it would have been done. But by the same token, if if Dan and I could both do it, and it wasn't always Silver Surfer. I think that there was some other stuff he was busy with, too. Anyway, he's usually doing a couple of different books. Um, but, no, I think people, I think they feel like we make a good team. And sometimes when I come in, it's a, it's a fairly uh, uh, quick thing in the sense that, hey, Dan's having some trouble with this, you know, meeting this deadline can you script this issue? And I'm like, sure. And then other times it's actually planned. You know, I remember with the superior venom arc, uh, Steve Wacker contacted me and was like, Hey, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're planning. We'd like to have you come in and co-write an arc with Dan to give him some breathing room. How about this one with venom? And I was like, sure. And so it, it varies. The circumstances vary, but we usually have a pretty good, uh, working relationship, and as long as we can do that, the fans seem to like it, and everyone seems to be happy with it. Then why not? I was going to ask uh, how it was decided which one you would be writing and which ones you wouldn't, um, but I guess that answers my question. Yeah. Um, so when when you read Dan's writing and your writing, what do you think makes his different from yours, and how do you attempt to bridge the gap and make the writing appear seamless? Oh gosh, I think there are some things we do similarly. Then there are some. You know, it's something that most fans probably wouldn't even notice that are different writing quirks between each of us. And sometimes I adapt, I, I, I take those on in the Spider-Man writing that I don't in others. Like Dan has a thing where he does, uh, you know, um, he'll, he'll be like, and this right here, question mark, this is blah, blah, blah. That That's just a way he writes. It's a stylistic thing. I don't do that in my own writing, but when I'm writing... Not not for any particular reason. It's just not my my style. But when I'm doing it as Spider Man, I I will adopt it. And actually, I found myself adopting it in some other stuff too. So there you go. Um, so it's really more. I think we already begin from a place of of some degree of similarity, uh, use of humor, but not to the point of hopefully undermining the character story. Um, and uh, you know, then I when I am doing Spider Man, I try to be conscious of. I don't want it to be jarring. Uh, and I don't think it is because there, there are times when people, you know, like, oh, I didn't know you did this one, which I think is a compliment because you want it to feel like you, you want the reader to have that experience. Um, you know, sometimes I do try to put a little of his manners. In, and then at the end, he always goes through and does a pass like he'll he'll usually, you know, he'll change a line or two. And sometimes it's just because he knows something is coming up in a future issue that I don't know about yet. And he'll say, Hey, can we put this line in here to to, you know, foreshadow this? Or, and then other times he'll just, you know tweak a line to make it sound more like his his writing uh but you know not you i mean like for instance in the in the uh in the amazing spider-man uh backup you know he didn't change very much uh and there was falling into a groove with him yeah i I think we have a pretty good groove i mean it's interesting because silver surfer i think would be silver surfer is kind of his his thing it's a real labor of love for him and and you know on that one uh He'll he'll blow the deadline. He'll he'll. It's okay if the book shifts late because it's really very much him and Mike Allred doing their thing. I think I would have a much tougher time coming in and, and seamlessly filling in on that because um, it's very personal and distinctive to Dan. Where Spider Man has been around, 
I'm sorry, to Dan and Mike, uh, and, uh, Spider-Man's been around for, you know, 50 years continuously. Uh, and there's a little bit more of a basis for who that guy is. So I think it works better on Spider-Man. I get the sense that Silver Surfer is very much Dan and Mike's, uh, love letter to Doctor Who. Uh, yes, it is. Which I don't watch. It's funny because, uh, I mean, I've heard great things about it. Would love to start watching it if I get the time. But Dan and I will be talking about story, and he'd be like, "You know, on Doctor Who when they did this." I'm like, "No, Dan, I, I don't watch Doctor Who." He's like, "Oh my god, you got to start watching Doctor Who." I say, "I know." And then, like five minutes later, so on Doctor Who when they did this, no, I don't watch Doctor Who. <laughs> I was like, "Give me something from '70s Marvel comics, and we can talk." <laughs> Stegron. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so much of your writing was during, uh, you know, on Spider-Man was during the superior era and a lot of readers. And I know that, uh, my co-host and I talked that we could kind of distinguish your writing of Octo- Otto Octavius from, uh, slots writing of Otto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious what your approach to writing Octavius was, uh, during that era. Well, it's interesting that you say that. And I'd love to hear, uh, what, what the things you noticed were, um, I really enjoyed writing Superior Spider-Man, writing Otto. Uh, I enjoyed the issues that I did for Spider-Verse. And one thing that everyone liked, which is just something I slipped in while I was writing it, is when he's in the future and he has that hologram Anna and he asks her to call him Otto. Um, that really hit a lot of people right in the feels. And, uh, I mean, from Nick Lowe, the editor, and, and, and Ellie, the assistant editor, and, and everybody, um, I really felt for Otto. I felt like... You know, I, I have an affinity when Mike Costa and I did G.I. Joe Cobra, Chuckles was like this. I have an affinity for characters. Hank Pym is like this, who try really hard, but just always screw it up, you know. <laughs> and and uh, Otto was a guy who was really trying to do the best thing for humanity as Spider-Man. He was trying to... to do what was best for the world. And he was really convinced that he knew what was best for the world. If everyone would just listen to him, everything would be fine. And he was trying this thing that seemed to work and just didn't quite work because he's a supervillain by nature. I mean, I thought the brilliance of Dan's superior Spider-Man story is, and I was funny because I remember when the fans were getting mad, I don't want to read about Dr. Octopus. I want to read about Peter Parker. And it's like, this, this, this story is about why only Peter Parker can be Spider-Man. Um, it's, it's, you know, because it's not the powers, it's not the costume, it's not power and responsibility, because Otto had that. It's just something about who Peter Parker is as a human being makes him perfectly suited to be Spider-Man. And that's what this story was about. Uh, and I knew people would like it. Uh, and it's funny, because when when it ended, people were like, I want more superior Spider-Man. Dan was like, you can't win. You know, I think he, he quote <laughs> the Fresh Prince. This is, this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. Um, but I really enjoyed writing Superior. It was like Breaking Bad for me. It's like you're writing a guy who you just see it's going to a bad end. And he gets some things right, but when it comes time to make the decisions, he makes always makes the wrong one. Not always, but he often makes the wrong one. But the thing I love about Otto is that he is a guy, you know, Peter Parker is, a, is supposed to be the regular guy, the everyman. In a lot of ways, he is. But he is always dating the most beautiful women in the world, you know, mm-hmm. supermodels, Gwen Stacy. If Black- only we could all have the Parker luck. Exactly. And and uh, Otto is a guy, there was a character, I was not a big fan of the late 90s era Spider-Man, but there was a, a character called Stunner who came along, who was this big Amazonian woman, super strength, who, who was Otto's partner and love interest. And um, the big reveal with her was that she was a virtual reality simulation and the real person uh was a overweight woman in a virtual reality machine and when Otto finds out he's like but I didn't love you for your 
what you look like. I loved you for your mind. And that is, that is truly who he is. Like we did the bit in the Venom storyline where uh, Anna Maria, uh, who is a little person, meets Aunt May. And Aunt May is just not like, you know, prejudice per se, but we all have our prejudices. And she's a little taken aback and is, is awkward. And it, it, you know, she's a little sh- surprised that Pete didn't say anything. And it's because Otto, it doesn't occur to him to mention something that is in his mind so inconsequential. Um, so he actually has some good qualities. And uh, that was a great romance, I thought, between those two characters. So there were so many things I really enjoyed uh, about writing that. It was great fun. And, you know, any chance uh, I get to write Otto Superior Spider-Man again, I will jump at we can hurl a couple of stones at Aunt May. She did try to set Peter up with MJ while he was dating Betty uh, <laughs> very early on. Um, well, that's, that's true. Um, and, you know, so there is a bit of precedent for Aunt May to be a little, a little meddlesome. I can't remember if it was that she was, you know, she, she saw Betty as a, as a bit of a Jezebel because she was not, she was out of older, or if it was just that, I mean, you know, keep in mind that in the 60s, you know, dating somebody was not what it is now. Like today, sure. you think dating someone, it means you're in a committed relationship with them. Whereas back in those days, uh, and it often means you're sleeping with them. Whereas in those days, dating someone meant like you were one of a number of people of the opposite sex you're keeping company with and you go to the sock hop on Saturday night or whatever it was. Um, so it is a little bit, you know, you got to keep the times in mind. But uh, yeah, there is some degree of Aunt May being well-meaningly meddlesome. I'm I'm half joking. Uh, um, I so, thought you were serious. I take Spider-Man very seriously. I, I do. I do as well. Um, so I, just to answer your question about what I think is different about your writing or what I saw different about your auto than Dan's, um, if you're so curious to find out, um, yes. is your auto to me uh, retained – his villainous edge a bit stronger than Dan's did. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan's auto, this is just as an outsider looking in, um, kind of as people grew to like the character, I feel like the character became more likable. Mm-hmm. And when I read your auto, I was like, oh, here's the still jerk that I want to keep reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really showed itself in those, uh, those later 32 and 33 of Superior Spider-Man those kind of flashback issues where I was like, all oh, right, like these are really nice, like jerky moments for this guy. <laughs> right. um, but he's also got those nice tender moments with Anna Maria. And right. um, I just thought it was a really well-balanced character under your pen. And that might not even be you, but that was just from an outsider's point of view. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, it, I don't know. Maybe it's reflected in the dialogue. I mean, plot wise, it's all Dan, uh, except, of, you know, of course I did that one annual where he, just dismantles blackout that was going to be my next question that was my that was my (laughs) idea that was somewhat early on in the process where you know because it's a bit like the sopranos what the sopranos did so well on that show is you know tony soprano was not a nice guy but there were things about him that were likable and you'd root for him and just when you started to get to the point where you were just unabashedly rooting for tony they the creators of the show would have him do something that reminded you that this is not a nice person. Like there was one episode where he just spent the entire episode destroying the life of a character played by Robert Patrick from Terminator 2. Um, And, you know, he'd do other things. He would do selfish things. uh, And they would just remind you, they almost slap you in the face with it. Like, Hey, this is not a nice guy. Don't get too comfortable. And so I did try to do that with, uh, with Otto, but there's also the, the other thing is there's something seductive about it. There's something seductive about, a, a guy 
who I mean, and they had uh, the Melfi character, Jennifer Melfi, uh, the therapist on Sopranos. Uh, she was uh, spoiler alert. She she was raped by a um, a guy who jumped jumped her in the parking lot, and she struggles with the fact of should I say? And because she's got you know a black eye and a, and a scar, and Tony says what happened, and she's like, oh, I, I you know fell in my driveway uh, or whatever, and she's thinking. I could just tell him what happened to me because the guy gets off on technicality and I could just tell him what happened to me and he would kill this man. And it's she's got this power to do it, but she knows it's wrong. And, uh, you know, it, there's something seductive about having someone who will just handle the problem that way. And so that's what I tried to do with Otto. It's like, no, this is a guy. This is not a guy who will save the villain's life, put him in prison and then have him get out and do it again. He's he's going to break every bone in this dude's body and make sure he can never do do this again. So um, that was that was kind of fun. It was it was really dark. I mean, we really pushed it pretty much to the limit of what you're going to want to have in a Spider-Man story. I was going to ask, was there any pushback from the editors in regards to how violent the character direction to be taken? They approved the story. Uh, There was some. And Javier Rodriguez, who's doing Spider-Woman right now, terrific, amazing artist, uh, he was asked to dial back some of the blood um, in the art. But in terms and, – and there was – I can't remember – you know, there was a lot of discussion about how far should we go with this. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because looking back on it, it does make me a little bit squeamish and – but – you know, I don't know. It was what felt right at the, t- at the time. So. Whatever. He's immortal. Do whatever you want to him. That's part of it is like I, <laughs> I tried to put it in there clearly that he is he's going to eventually heal from this. Um, but, boy, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be painful. <laughs> so let me ask about about this kind of actions by uh, the superior Spider-Man. We had in an early issue and I, this is probably a question better directed Dan Slott, but. We have not been able to get him on the show, so I'm going to ask you. Okay. Um, early on in the series, there was a moment where um, Spider-Man shot Massacre, or we don't we don't see him, but it's, you know, obviously he shot Massacre and killed him. Right. Um, and when it's first shown, it's, it seems to be a very public execution, only to be really dialed back in later issues where it seems as if editorial said that couldn't have been public. Was was there an intentional dialing back on how public that murder was? I'm not really sure if it was – If I don't – the answer is I don't know. I don't know that there was a, a standards and practices thing. You know, in other words, someone said that was too violent at so much as – you know, if it happened openly in public, if, if Spider-Man – if the general public knew Spider-Man had shot somebody, even in self-defense – I mean he's not a cop. He's not – authorized by the law to do this uh there is no oversight board for spider-man you know j jonah jameson would have had a field day he would basically not have been able to function as spider-man from then on so unless your entire storyline is going to be spider-man being chased by the cops and some of unless he's essentially going to become the punisher i mean one of the things i thought that garth ennis did that was smart in punisher is basically showing that the vast majority of rank and file cops like what this guy's doing. And if they see him, they're going to look the other way. Uh, they're going to let him continue with what he's doing. Um, and you know, that could have been its own story if you really want to delve into it, but I thought that's where it was headed. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Dan ever had that in his mind or not, but, uh, I think it was ended up, you know, like the, the people who, the civilians who he saved, you know, I think in a future issue, it was shown that they're sort of covering it up. They're like, nah, I didn't see what happened, you know, because they, they, they're like, this guy saved my life and I'm not going to get him in trouble. Um, so I, I, I don't know the circumstance of that. I didn't write those issues. Uh, and uh, if you get Dan on, you should ask him. But uh, yeah, no. I was just curious. I was just curious. You also wrote the conclusion to the superior era. 
um, and, and a lot of the latter half of that series. Um, with the idea being the brainchild of Dan Slott, this whole superior concept, what was it like to be the writer that kind of closed the chapter on it? Well, it was both of us. I mean, Dan plotted it and I sure. scripted it, but it was it was really cool to be able to do that. And, you know, one of my big contributions, <laughs> this is not that big a contribution, but um, in, in the storyline, there's a moment where Pete has become Spider-Man again and he comes back and uh, Green Goblin still thinks it's Otto and he's saying something to him and Pete makes a joke about Norman carrying a man purse. Um, and that in that moment, Norman knows that it's him. And in the, the plot just said, you know, Pete makes a joke that makes Norman know uh, who he is. And I was getting to that point. I was a little worried about coming up with an appropriate joke. Like, and, and then it just came to me. And Dan was like, that's great. That's perfect. And, you know, uh, people have said that they liked it. So that's I, a good I know people I loved it. A lot of our <laughs> listeners commented on that joke. That's great. Well, well, uh, I know a lot of people uh, liked it, and, and I think that's a great example of the of the synergy working well. We um, had that in the Daredevil writing room, you know, with Drew Goddard and and um, you know a lot of the guys. I mean, when, when there's when you have a group of writers together, uh, the synergy makes again makes you greater than the sum of the parts. So I, I I think that that was a case of that working out. So you've almost wrapped up writing Spider Island. I'm curious where the idea for the story came from. Was it editorial who approached you about doing a Spider Island story for Secret Wars, or did you pitch this idea to them? No, they came to me and said, hey, do you want to do a Secret Wars miniseries called Spider Island? And I said, sure. And they're like, that's all we got, the name Spider Island. So uh, do you know what do you want to do? I'm, obviously, it's going to be based to some degree on the original Spider Island story. So I was like, well... And at the time, I had been reading a lot of 70s Jack Kirby, so I was really in, the, in a sort of a commandy mindset and, you know, animal-human hybrids and whatever. So I just kind of went a little nuts with that and was like, what if we do Cap Wolf? And, you know, my idea was that the queen wins, everyone's taken over, including all the heroes as spider people. And then the only way Agent Venom can can set them free is by further mutating them. So, you know, just went a little wacky and uh, had a lot of fun. Uh, Paco Diaz did an amazing job with the art, really creepy. It is grotesque. Yeah, I mean, J- Spider Giant Man is awesome, uh, really creepy. And then uh, this will come out. People are going to hear this after this Wednesday, right? Sure. I mean, I just had so much fun with it. At the, in, the, in the final issue, we meet the member of the Thor Corps, the Thor Corps, like the police of the Secret Wars world. And uh, we meet the one who covers Spider Island. And I was trying to come up with a type of Thor. So I was just like, oh, wait, what if he's a, a dinosaur person and his name is Dino Thor? <laughs> <laughs> which just delights me that there's, that I was able to, to create a character called Dino Thor. Uh, it's like it's like dinosaur if you had a lisp. So uh, <laughs> I just had a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, comics should be fun. They should be crazy. You know, keep comics weird and all those things. I was trying to bring into to, to uh, Spider Island. Well, we're all loving it. Uh, sure. I think for that exact reason. Um, I, I'm glad to hear it. And Steg runs in it. And he does the same thing he did in the story I loved so much where he reanimates the the skeletons in the Museum of Natural History. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Nice callback. Yeah. Um, I I guess I'm curious, before you're doing a Secret Wars story, how much of the plot of Secret Wars were you guys privy to or the setup of how the worlds work? Because it seems like some of the stories in the Secret Wars universe – really seem to get how Secret Wars operates, and others seem to be a more, like, really tangential, off-on-their-own uh, kind of creations. Yeah, well, 
in my, I, I suppose it depends when the story was commissioned. In my case, I, I got to read the first two Secret Wars scripts. I think that's all that was in at the time. Um, and uh, I, I can't speak for the others. I mean, it, it always varies. They always give you everything they have at that time. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's always things that change. But, you know, there were certain rules and parameters that were laid down. Like, you can have versions of pretty much any Marvel character, but no Fantastic Four characters. Like, Doom has made sure that these characters do not exist in the world. Um, and uh, so you can't have a version of The Thing or... Because The Thing was a big part of, of the original Spider Island story. So they told me, you know, don't put The Thing in, in this. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know... Well, so He's the wall now, I, I right, assume. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, there was that. Um, but, you know, the other thing, too, is this particular story did not feel like one that, that was going to be a big tie in to the larger mini series. Um, it felt like one that should be its own thing. So that's how I did it. Except at the end when the Thor, when Dinothor comes along, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a book dropping moment. I hope so. <laughs> uh, well, I can't wait to find out who Reed is in Secret Wars, but I'm sure we'll get to that in the next issue or so. Yeah. Um, so you also wrote the script for the Amazing Spider-Man 2 video game. How does yeah. writing a video game differ from writing comics or television shows? Well, writing a video game, obviously in the video games, the gameplay is, is the important thing. Um, you know, you're kind of writing to serve the gameplay. So you have to set up a scenario that will allow for for the, the player to get into the action and uh, move it along, stay true to the characters. You have to be very brief. Uh, you know, you can't go into long monologues. People will just click through that to get to the next gameplay section. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then you have to write in-game dialogue, which in the case of any Spider-Man game is going to be a lot of wisecracking and making fun of the bad guy. Um and, uh, you know, then there's the stuff that's more housekeeping, like you know, 15 different ways of saying, I need to go over there. You know, if the player's going in the wrong way, you know, I, I, I got to find a way to get into that into that bank, you know. Um, so it varies. Um, it's sort of an interesting hybrid of different things. It's, it, I, I enjoy doing, writing video games uh, because it, it helps me stretch different muscles and I enjoy it. I don't know if I'd ever want to do it just writing video games. But uh, I, I enjoy doing it. Uh, I'm working on one right now that I can't really talk about. But, uh, you know, I like it. Cool. Now, I know you're not allowed to talk about Daredevil. Uh, right. You made that very clear when we met at the Long Beach Comic Con. That's right. Um, but- I was on the show. Ruth and I were on the show for 14 months before we could even let anyone know we were on the show. Literally <laughs> the month it came out, uh, the Writers Guild announced a panel that – of the daredevil writers and that we were on it. So that's when we could finally talk about it. So I kept the secret for, for 14 months. Wow. Are you allowed to say that you're working on season two? I'm not allowed to say anything. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Can I ask you this? And you can say no, if you can't answer this, Um, is there an era of daredevil that the writers are pulling from the most? Like, should we expect a Frank Miller inspired season two of the show, you know, with Electra and Punisher coming on board? Well, just generally speaking, I mean, the the people, uh, you know, Drew Goddard, the people working on the show are very conscious of the fact that this is you're, you're not doing this is not an adaptation of a comic. Um, you're, you're doing a Daredevil TV show and it has to be its own thing. That said, there are some er- eras that inspire the show more than others. Obviously, the uh, the Frank Miller era more so than the, you know, more lighthearted, swash- swashbuckling Stanley Gene Colan era. Um, but 
everyone has has read. Ruth was the only one uh, in the room who hadn't ever read a Daredevil comic, and we advised everyone asked her not to because we wanted you know the show's going to be watched by people who have never read a Daredevil comic, and you want it to make sense to them. Um, so. Uh, but other than that, everyone had read the comics, and you know, I think it's. I think the influences are there, uh, but it, there's there's a big difference between have, having influences and respecting them, and then just doing, um, you know, a direct adaptation, which I don't think works. I mean, in you know, in, in the comics, uh, you know, there, Electra wasn't around for a long time when she came around. Kingpin was all really all pretty well established as a character. He and Vanessa were married, uh, you know, and they're not married in the TV show. Uh, um, so, you know, there, you, you, you can't you have to understand that you're doing a new thing, but at the same time, respect what, what inspired it. And poor Ben Urich. This was that was that was just a heartbreaking moment for me. It was heartbreaking for everybody. Oh, I, I don't even want to dwell on it too long because it no. made me very upset. Good, good call. <laughs> um, so given Marvel's recent deal with Sony and your role of writing on Daredevil on Netflix, um, are there any indications that Spider-Man could somehow be incorporated into that universe? And, and if you can't answer that, do you think Spider-Man could even work in a dark universe like we saw on Netflix? I don't know. I think it, everything is its own thing. Can they work – in, in something, it would be sure anything can work. Uh, but you know, obviously the focus I think is with, and I'm just saying this cause I've seen every, the same stuff you have, uh, or anyone has seen, um, online, but I think the focus is on reestablishing Spider-Man in the movies. And then, you know, who knows what the future could hold. Do you think that, uh, Kingpin is going to be locked into the Marvel television side of things? Or do you think we could ever see, I know that I very much desire a Spider-Man vs. Kingpin film, um, and I would love to see Vincent D'Onofrio up on the big screen. Do you think that so could ever I. be a possibility? I'm sure it's a possibility. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's definitely a possibility. I mean, I think everyone recognizes that, you know, Vincent's an accomplished film actor as well as television actor. Uh, he would be great. And, you know, he's really good friends with Robert Downey Jr., by the way. Um, so... I don't know if that will ever lead to anything, but, uh, you know, why not? Perhaps the Kingpin isn't splashy enough of a villain to make it the big screen, um, but I would love to see it. Me too. Um, so this is the last question we always ask all of the people that come uh, on the show. Um, but what does it mean to you personally that you've written so many Spider-Man stories? Gosh, it, you know, it's funny because... Uh, I was I was very aware of it. I mean, the first thing I got to do for Marvel was a Spider-Man story. That was awesome. Uh, I probably would have been happy if that was it. Um, but getting to be a part of, of the ongoing saga has been wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I do appreciate how important it is to me. I mean, to be a kid, you know, where else do you get to, to grow up being a fan of something and then contribute to the mythology? It's hard to, I mean... Okay, J.J. Abrams grew up watching Star Wars, and now he's doing Star Wars. But but for the most part, you can't it's you can't do that except in comics. So it just it's it's really awesome. And uh, whereas I, while I would hope my career will go on for quite a long time from now, uh, you know, quite honestly, I, I have achieved so many things that that I would never have imagined possible. That. I'd be happy if it ended right now, assuming I wasn't, you know, homeless and living under a bridge. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy if this is as far as I got. And, uh, you know, 
I could look at the things I've done and be like, wow, I can't believe I actually got to do that. It's, it's really cool. Well, uh, before you go, where can our listeners follow you or experience more of your work? Well, let's see. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Christos Gage, all one word, and you can experience more of my work. My wife and I uh, just had our first collaboration on an original graphic novel come out, The Line of Aurora from Oni Press. It's a historical epic I hope everyone will check out. Um, and we have a great raffle we're running. If you post a picture of yourself on the Facebook page with the book, uh, you, you can be entered into a raffle, and including among the prizes are a cast-signed Daredevil poster, um, so there's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, and as far as other stuff, you know, I've got uh, – I write the monthly Buffy comic from Dark Horse and, you know, just Google my name and there will be some stuff. I always forget what all I've done. So check it out. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been great having you on the show, Christos. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Spider-Man and his amazing friend. Well, I wanted to say thanks again to Christos Gage for joining me on the show. It was, you know, it's a lengthy interview, over an hour. So he really was generous with his time and providing us some really great insights into how these comics got made, uh, all the comics we've been reading for the past several years. I hope that someday we can get Dan Slott on the show. But like, even just listening to this episode and being part of this interview, I, uh, I hope. You know, I, I know I did, but I hope you listeners as well got a real sense about um, how Dan Slott writes comics, how Christos Gage writes comics, and how they work together. Yeah, no, this was definitely some fascinating stuff, Dan. I mean, and it gives you a lot of insights into what, what exactly goes on when – especially when you see Gage's name on the front of an issue under Dan's. You know that there's something going on, and now we, come, we have a little more insight to that. So that's very cool. Right, yeah. It is kind of you know like authorship in comics is something that's always kind of – confusing or any kind of collaborative art form right you know like what is the artist involved in what is the writer involved in and the only real way to figure it out is to ask these guys like about every little moment like did you have spider-man say this like i was shocked when he said that um the quip about the goblin's uh, man purse was his creation and not slots because i think people would attribute that to kind of slots jokey writing you know and uh nope that was christos gage um, so it's nice to kind of always get that curtain peeled back. Very cool. All right, Dan, why don't you take us all the way home here? Yeah, uh, well, of course, if you want to listen to more of our episodes, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and old Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please make sure you leave us a review on the show where, you know, I like to get us to 100 reviews. So, you know, Please help push us there. This is how we grow as an audience. Yeah, and be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages at facebook.com slash superior spider talk and facebook.com slash chasing amazing, where you can hear more news stories, articles, quips, and thwips, and all that on Facebook. And as always, be sure to follow the adventures of Spider Gwen and Miles Morales with our sister podcast, The Ultimate Spin, hosted by Brian, Kyle, and Noor. I know that they have a new episode out this very week, so go check it out. Yes, and as always, special thanks goes out to the creators of the music of this show. Our theme song is courtesy of Rylan Bojack, and our outro song comes from Magic. And again, a special thanks to Nick Cagnetti, Ray Sumzer, Ron Friend, and Sal Buscema for our show's awesome artwork. That's great, Dan. So where can we find you on the internet? Of course, you can find me at superiorspidertalk.com for all my Spider-Man stuff. 
You can read my movie reviews at grindmyreels.com and follow me on Twitter at, at DanGavazdan or Spider-Man-wise, you can follow me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk. What about you, Mark? Yeah, well, you can find me on Superior Spider Talk, where I'll be doing Volume 2 Reviewed, my review of the Mackie Byrne run from the late 90s, and also the ending of the Clone Saga Chronicles, where I retroactively look back at the Clone Saga arcs. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Awesome, Mark. Well, uh, what kind of amazing Uncle Ben story do you have for us this week? Uncle Ben was, uh, he was part of a foundation, and uh, he was hugging a kid in that foundation. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm glad that my Uncle Ben's legacy is living on. And he's hugging a kid in a really kind of cartoony image. Um, but, you know, this is, this is something that he would have liked to see. You know what else he liked to see, Dan? What? He liked to see with a great podcast must also come amazing spider talk. 